Thank you, Dr. Greger, for joining us today. That was a very powerful presentation. So I'm, I'm actually, be here. Oh, I'm so glad to be here. Glad to have you. I'm actually a very big fan of your work, and I watch and share your videos all the time. So uh, now we're going to begin our live Q&A. We're going to be opening up questions to the audience. I'm going to first ask a few questions, and then we'll, we'll open it up to them. And uh, for people who want to ask a question, please raise your hand by going to the bottom of the Zoom window. Second from the right, you'll see a reactions button and you'll click on that and then you'll select raise hand from there. So um, my first question um, I wanted to ask you about is um, in our next speaker's book, Sickened, Dr. John Abramson from Harvard Medical School's clinical faculty talks about how the peer reviewers of articles in peer reviewed journals do not necessarily have access to the source material that a study's conclusions are based on, and instead do their review based on the conclusion of the authors of the study along with the design structure of the study. Is that correct? And to the extent that it is, how do we ensure the veracity and validity of peer reviewed studies? And how does that fact impact how you interpret these peer reviewed studies? Yeah, that can be a problem. Uh, data transparency is critical um, and oftentimes, uh, particularly with drug trials, um, there's some kind of proprietary shield over kind of participant level data. Um, and so you have kind of compiled statistics, um, which are presented in the paper, but you don't actually see kind of the original raw data. And the concern is when there is kind of a, a commercial influence, there's a funding, a potential for funding bias. The concern is maybe they're sweeping something under the rug. They've never made it to the final paper. Maybe they're kind of ignoring outliers. Maybe they're, you know. Uh, so you always want as much data transparency as possible. Thankfully, uh, many of the major journals now demand it. So you really can, I mean, if you want to get uh, published in some of the top tier journals, which um, many of these companies want to do because they want to put their results in front of the, uh, you know, the scientific community in the best light. Uh, so they're forced to really uh, uncover um, and basically, you know, give their raw data, present their raw data, not only sometimes to the peer viewers, but actually accessible to the public as well. I mean, you can go um, and, you know, you can you can go to kind of the online version of the article and actually download the Excel spreadsheets yourself. And that allows kind of amateur sleuths across the Internet to be like, wait a second, that looks a little fishy. Why do all your and there's interesting um, statistical models that you can run on raw data to, to see if someone made up numbers. It's really crazy. There's a, a number distribution, uh, like how many ones, how many twos, how many threes, how many fours, that actually occurs naturally. And you can actually tell if someone actually just like makes up random numbers, um, not with 100% certainty, but you can get kind of a sense of like, this actually don't look like they actually came about in the natural world. Um, and so there's all sorts of really cool stuff going on. And so there's this movement to open up um, uh, because there's been just been outrageous um, instances in the past of particularly big pharma and some of the kind of medical instrument companies that make like, you know, like uh, the, the, you know, uh, artificial hips and things like that, um, uh, that, that have, uh, uh, you know, have hidden things that were uh, not great for their, um, that not great for the patients, not great for the stockholders. Um, but, uh, you know, so anyway, good for the stockholders, actually bad for the patients. 
Great. Thank you for that answer. So caloric restriction has uh, become very popular. Like uh, Longo has done, uh, you know, research on the power of uh, caloric restriction with regard to health and longevity. To the extent that that is true, um, are the dietary recommendations for calories you know, accurate, like 2000 calories a day for the average size person? Oh, so it's interesting. So caloric restriction, I have a whole chapter of it on it in the How Not to Diet book. And I have a chapter on it in my upcoming book, How Not to Age on Longevity, which will be out in December. Um, so I'm really kind of steeped in this literature. There's very, uh, so first of all, just to take a step back, uh, people are all excited about caloric restriction because, you know, we have about a century of data suggesting that, for example, if you calorie restrict a ratchet and get as much as a 50% increase in uh, in average lifespan. Um, but it turns out that um, a minority of animals actually, I mean, so that there's this sense that calorie restriction extends life of all animals. Completely not true. About 80% of animals doesn't work at all. And in rodents even. So for example, mice, they looked at the dozens of strains of mice. Caloric, caloric restriction shortened the lives of three times as many that actually improved. Most actually didn't do anything to the lifespan, uh, but I think it improved like five, but then um, shortened the lives of 15. So if you can't even extrapolate from one strain of mice to another strain of mice, to extrapolate to people is a little pushing it. In fact, and some uh, some strains, it uh, extended the lives of female mice and it's in the same uh, you know, uh, decrease the lives of male male mice at the, at the same strain. Anyway, so the data for anyone who actually takes an objective look is conflicted all over the place. We're not mice um, and on and on. And I mean, the entire field is really, uh, the fundamental problem is that the control group typically ad libitum diets, meaning you can eat as much as you want. Anyone who has a pet knows that if you let your animal eat as much as they want, what happens? They get fat. Um, and what happens when they get fat? Then they suffer from obesity-related disease, including shortened lifespan. So whether or not caloric restriction is actually extending lives or just preventing the life-shortening effects of obesity um, is a completely different question. So, um, so look, there's a lot of fat people. In fact, 74% uh, of Americans are overweight or obese, or obese right now. Um, and so in that sense, you can extrapolate. Yeah, we all, I mean, most of us really do need to caloric restrict, but someone healthy weight, caloric restricting is actually going to make them live longer. Even the, even the rodent data, the best data is questionable on that fact. I could go on and on and on. Anyway, um, uh, the mo I, I think the cr most critical piece to take home is that most, if not all of the benefits of caloric restriction actually come from protein restriction. So um, if you, uh, if you uh, just restrict protein, you can get the same kind of life ex extension or um, without restriction of calories at all, um, or you can restrict calories, but keep protein the same and you don't get the benefit of caloric restriction. So really maybe all about restricting protein and not just all protein specific proteins, particularly methionine um, and some of the branched chain amino acids. And so thankfully we can all, that's a lot easier rather than starving ourselves. We can bring our pro total protein intake down to recommended levels, which is 0.8 grams per kilogram body weight. And we can shift from animal sources of protein to plant protein sources, which will um, move over, kind of shift the amino acid profile in a more longevity promoting direction.
Great. Thank you so much. So given what you just said about uh, caloric restriction and, and the results being at best uh, um, confusing, um, how does that jive with the benefits in fasting, which I guess is the ultimate form of caloric restriction? Um, yeah. So I have a whole series of about 26 videos on fasting, um, a very popular uh, video series. I did a webinar on it. Um, and uh, have lots. In fact, that's the biggest chapter in how not to diet. Talk about intermittent fasting, water-only fasting, 5-2 fasting, fasting mimicking diets, et cetera, et cetera. And so, I mean, I kind of dive deep in the literature, talk about the pros and cons of all the different types. And basically, kind of the bottom line, spoiler alert, is early time-restricted feeding um, is um, remarkably beneficial. So we should try to restrict our eat daily eating window to 12 hours or less, but critically it should be early rather than late. If we skip any meal, we're skipping supper, not breakfast. Ideally we should shove our, most of our caloric intake as early in the day as possible. Great. I just shifted my window to, uh, to be exactly that based on your book. Oh, fantastic. So, um, Changing to curcumin, a lot of our speakers have mentioned the power of curcumin as as if it's you know some really you know amazing uh, spice you know or element I guess of of, of turmeric. Um, what what does the research show uh, of the power of of curcumin? Should we just have uh, term you know turmeric or um, should we go for some sort of uh, a curcumin um, supplement? Yeah, so I've got lots of videos on both curcumin and turmeric. The reason you hear so many people pushing curcumin is because you can actually make some money selling curcumin. You can't make money selling turmeric, right? It's just dirt cheap, um, you know, a few pennies a day uh, for a daily dose. Um, but many of the benefits that ascribe to, to, to curcumin may actually be non-curcumin, so-called curcuminoids. Um, and so you can do these studies um, showing that you can get similar effects with curcumin-free turmeric, meaning you extract the curcumin out, throw it away, and you think, well, if that's the active ingredient, you should, it should be nothing, right? No, you can actually sometimes even get better effects. Um, uh, uh, and so, uh, I, you know, I encourage people to kind of, uh, in general, uh, try to eat things as nature intended, as grown, food as grown, um, in its whole form. Um, and there are indeed studies showing that just plain regular turmeric in kind of culinary doses um, can have remarkable uh, benefits. It is the single most anti-inflammatory food found the dietary inflammatory index. Um, there is no food on the planet that's been shown um, in these randomized controlled trials to have more of an anti-inflammatory effect. So I encourage people to actually include it every day. It's part of my daily dozen, one of the daily dozen of my healthiest of healthy foods to include into your daily life includes a quarter teaspoon of turmeric a day. If you don't like the taste, then um, you can either put it into capsules or you can buy pre, just pre-made capsules. But again, I encourage people not to get curcumin extract supplements, but just straight one ingredient, turmeric, period. No fillers, no nothing. Great, thank you. In one of your videos, you talk about replacing salt with potassium chloride. Some yeah. of the speakers recommended avoiding potassium chloride. What does the research show? Uh, why was someone uh, down on potassium chloride? Was there a reason given? Uh, something about it not being natural. Um, and what do you mean? It's as natural as sodium chloride. It's just a, a mineral that's mined from the earth, just like salt is. Yeah, no, potassium chloride. So the so uh, the gold burner disease study, the largest study of disease risk factors on planet earth, um, uh, the, uh, funded by the Mill and Melinda Gates Foundation, found that the number one dietary risk factor for death on the planet, the single worst thing about the human diet, is it soda? Is it processed meat? No, 
excess sodium intake kills more people than anything else that we eat. Um, and so if there was one thing to do about our diet, first, it would be to reduce our salt intake. And one of the ways we can do that without sacrificing taste is by shifting over to potassium chloride. Um, and so we actually tend to be deficient in potassium. Uh, 98% of Americans don't even reach the recommended minimum daily intake of 4,700 milligrams of potassium. Uh, most of us get way too much sodium. Um, and so, hey, this is better. We, we cut out the sodium, get the potassium, uh, has the same kind of salty taste. Ta-da! Okay, what's the, what's the downside? Well, I mean, so the reason this isn't used everywhere, like this isn't like, you know, I mean, just like, why doesn't all the manufacturers and restaurants just switch over to it? Is um, you, if you have uh, dysfunctional kidneys, if your kidneys aren't working well, then you can build up too much potassium in your blood. Normally, um, your potassium, your, your kidneys just wash off any extra potassium. Um, in fact, we probably evolved getting an excess of 10,000 milligrams, massive amounts of potassium every day. No problem. Our kidneys just wash it out. They're used to that. But let's say you have kidney function, a kidney dysfunction. Um, then you can build up dangerous levels of potassium in bloodstream and, and have a problem. So if you're diabetic, if you're elderly, um, if you have anything that might suggest you might have inadequate kidney function, before you make that switch to potassium chloride, I really would like you get your kidney function tested. You can do that very easily um, uh, with your with your medical professional, and just make sure because you know kidney neuro um, nephropathy is you know rife among diabetics and a certain age. Some people's kidney function starts to decline. Um, or if you have kidney issues, you know you have kidney issues. Um, you want to make sure um, uh, you can handle it. Ironically, even people with kidney dysfunction actually made longer live longer switching to potassium chloride, even though there's a risk of excess potassium just because um, so sodium is so damaging uh, to the kidneys. But that's something you want to talk to your doctor about. <music>